Hi, everybody. Um, let's get started. I uh, apologize to people at home. I didn't bring my cord to connect the microphone to the computer, so I think the podcast will still record, but the quality will probably be pretty rough to listen to. But you're all here, so that's good. Um, obviously, we have a special guest. This is my son, Devin, who's joining us today. Any questions about the exam can be directed. Um, and um, so today we're going to get back into Babylon. And the way I see the next, this lecture and the next lecture breaking down is today we're going to talk about applying the reasonableness standard, which I really do think is the most important contribution of Babylon in many ways to uh, admin law in the area that had been really overlooked in the previous admin law cases. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the very strong, uh, I, I always call it a dissent in my mind. Of course, it's not a dissent. It's concurring in the result. But the minority reasons of Justice Isabella and Carrie Katsanis, um, because I think they'll help us really understand what is so remarkable about what was done in Babylon. And then, um, time permitting, I will talk also about the NFL case today, which is the case that uh, that probably best illustrates the minority judgment's concern with the approach to this uh, review in the face of a, a uh, statutory right of appeal. So. That should probably take us the rest of the, the day to get through that. Then on Wednesday, we'll talk about the Canada Post case. And we'll also talk about uh, the Paul Daly article of the articles that's on the syllabus. I'll take the other one off of the syllabus. And we'll speak about the um, Forex case that was released this morning, which I haven't read, but I assume just adopted the captain. And then. Uh, so let's get into... Vavilov um, applying the reasonableness standard, I do think, again, the most important contribution. And after the break, also, we'll watch um, a presentation at the Supreme Court of Canada by the other amicus, um, not Andre Bachter, but Daniel Zutras, the University of Montreal rector, who um, has a very a very interesting and illuminating presentation on this point of applying the reasonableness standard. Uh, but first, let's go through, you know, what does the Supreme Court of Canada do in Babylon on this application of the standard? And the way they explained it is you have a reasons first approach. And this is the whole point is how do we determine if a administrative decision is reasonable? And the answer is, well, you look to the reasons that are given by the tribunal, and that's the starting point, and that's the focus of the analysis. What do you do in the absence of reasons? Well, they do talk about that in Babylon. Uh, we'll get to that in a little while. Let's presume we're in an administrative decision-making context where there's a duty to provide reasons, or even if there wasn't a duty, there were reasons provided. And of course, we can think back to Baker as the case that first found a duty to provide reasons within the procedural fairness context. 
But you'll remember I said, in procedural fairness, it's a right to get reasons, but it's not a right about the content or quality of those reasons. It's just, did you get reasons at all? Well, now we're talking about the content or quality of those reasons within this substantive component of judicial review. And just to understand a little bit more of the history, I think I've touched on this briefly, but I didn't underscore it to the extent perhaps uh, that it merits. But the idea had been very firmly established that what matters in a judicial review is not strictly the reasons themselves and the quality of those reasons. And you can have the idea was errors or things that are hard to follow or pretty weak reasons, if the court looks at it and says, okay, maybe the reasons aren't great, but the reasoning process has arrived at a reasonable outcome, and so we're not going to interfere. So there is this dilemma as to whether judicial review is focused with the reasoning process as well as the outcome, or simply the outcome and the reasoning process doesn't matter as long as it gets to a reasonable outcome. And there had been a sort of high water mark where the court had gone so far as to say, look, I want to consider not only the reasons that are offered for this outcome, but I'm going to think about the reasons that hypothetically could have been offered. And if reasonable uh, reasoning processes could have been offered for this decision, I'm still going to defer to it and uphold it. That's the real high watermark of deference. What you see in Babylon is the court say, okay, hold on. What matters is not simply the outcome, but also the process that leads to that outcome. And I think there's a lot of good reasons that you'd want to, uh, that support that proposition. And perhaps the most important is the perspective of the unhappy litigant. And we said earlier, I think, that you know the most important person in any courtroom or adjudicative framework at all is the loser. And if they can understand why they lost, have a clear sense as to, um, you know, they may not accept the decision, but they at least understand it. Well, that goes a long way to acceptance and that furthers you know, in many people's conception, the rule of law. So the court said in Babylon quite clearly, we are abandoning the idea that we're only concerned with the outcome and not the process that leads you to get there. We are concerned now with both process and outcome, and both have to be reasonable. So it does make sense then, I think, that you're going to imagine the... Um, review would have to focus on those reasons that are offered. The other thing about a reasons-first approach, though, is not just that it allows you a window into uh, the reasoning process and allows you to evaluate whether that reasoning process, you know, stands scrutiny, but also when you do a reasons-first approach, it underlines one of the most important and easiest to say, but most difficult for judges to apply 
components of this judicial review framework, and that is this. It's the idea, I don't want you to decide the issue yourself and then use your view of the matter as a measuring stick to see if the administrative decision maker was, you know, in essence, close enough to your view that will uphold it. That is not the process that is to be done in a reasonableness review. You are not to come to your own decision. Rather, what you are to do is look at the process the administrative decision maker took with respectful attention in light of the full context. And you are to ensure that that reasoning process is defensible in light of the law and facts. And if it is, I don't care what you would have done if you had decided the matter first. In fact, I don't want you to even think of that. Now, it's very easy to say that, and it's very easy to hypothetically understand or in theory understand how that might work. It's very difficult for a judge to look at a legal problem and not think in the back of their mind, well, the answer is obviously this. This is how I would have put that and so this is something that you'll have to fight against when you have a decision that you're trying to defend that the court doesn't intuitively agree with. Now, of course, when the court intuitively agrees with you, anybody can be a good lawyer, right? That's not a hard task. So whenever you're pitching a submission, whenever you're getting ready to make an argument, you always want to write with the hypothetical audience of the judge who, in their gut, doesn't agree with you, right? That's the person you want to convince. So when you're arguing these cases, you want to present your argument in such a way so as to presume, look, I know you would have found different, but you know, you'll say, I know you would have found differently, but you want to think, I want the audience of somebody who would have found differently to understand that that doesn't matter. And what matters is a review of what reasoning did occur, not what reasoning could have occurred if the person followed the judge's you know, preferred framework. So um, let's, that's sort of just an introduction, but let's get really kind of into the, the framework for this reasonableness review. And I'll be tying it consistently back into that reasons first, respectful attention, don't decide the matter yourself and use that as a yardstick uh, sort of framing that we have broadly. And before getting into uh, the actual analysis, I want to point out how well I think the Supreme Court majority explained the problem and explained how the problem that they face is in large part um, compounded by the breadth of different admin tribunals and decision makers whose work will fall under the purview of judicial review. Because you must remember, there have been attempts to say there's more than two standards of review. Uh, there's been attempts to say there's a range of different kinds of reasonableness review, even beyond patent and reasonableness versus reasonableness simpliciter. So you want to think that 
there's been efforts to account for the variety of different decision makers within the standard themselves, within the what's the reasonableness time and reasonable standard you're going to apply. The courts have done away with that, now said there's only one standard, the reasonableness or correctness, which is a different matter, but there's only one deferential standard, and that's reasonable. And then the problem, this is the problem that Justice Binney articulated, and the court was very, very cognizant of, Binney articulated in Dunsmere, is, well, if you want to simplify things at the front end, you're going to have to grapple with the problem of the vast array of different administrative decision makers at some point, and you're probably just going to push it into the application. It's going to get difficult then. You're going to say it's a reasonable standard, but then all the problems that led to, you know, a pragmatic and functional contextual approach and looking at all these different considerations and weighing the standard of review, you're getting rid of those, but they're going to come up sooner or later. And the court, I think, articulates that problem in paragraph 88 of Avala pretty well. And they say, in any attempt to develop a coherent and unified approach to judicial review, the sheer variety of decisions and decision makers that such an approach must account for poses an inescapable challenge. The administrative decision makers whose decisions may be subject to judicial review include specialized tribunals exercising adjudicative functions, independent regulatory bodies, ministers, frontline decision makers, and more. Their decisions vary in complexity and importance, ranging from the routine to the life-altering. These include matters of high policy on the one hand and pure law on the other. Such decisions will sometimes involve complex technical considerations. At other times, common sense and ordinary logic will suffice. And I think that that's as good of an encapsulation of breadth of administrative decision making as I've really ever seen in a decision, in a judicial decision. And again, it just underscores that the court is aware and alive to this problem of the giant breadth that they're trying to account for within this single reasonableness standard. And this is, I think, a uh, preemption almost of a critique of the case that you've oversimplified things and you've ignored the complexity of administrative decision makers. So the court says, despite this breadth, there is one standard and it is reasonableness. And there are not differing sorts of reasonableness review, they say. There's not going to be uh, a second analysis where you say, okay, I'm in reasonableness but now I'm going to analyze how deferential my reasonableness is before you get into the actual merits of the decision. They say, no, it's reasonableness, it's one standard, and it's a question of whether the decision is reasonable. However, here's where they, you have to deal with it somewhere, and here's where they sort of slide this, this problem of the variety into their framework, and they say, there's one standard, and the standard is the same. However, what would make a decision reasonable is contextually specific, is context-dependent. So they're saying 
we are going to account for the breadth of decisions, not in defining the standard, but by taking into account the full, the full scope of the context that's relevant to understanding if a decision is reasonable or not. And this is, again, you know, sort of harkens back to um, the reasonable apprehension of bias test, right? And you remember, what's the reasonable apprehension of bias? Is it just, you know, would somebody at a glance think that this is unfair? You know, no, it's, is the, you know, reasonable and well-informed person aware of the statutory scheme and all and everything at play, would they think it's biased? It's a similar idea here, that when you're looking at whether something is reasonable, you can't do this at a superficial level. You can't just sort of take hold of one apparent flaw in the reasoning process and say, aha, the whole thing goes out. Rather, you have to consider the full context. You have to know about this decision maker, the people who are affected, um, the submissions that were before the, the tribunal. You have to know about the statutory scheme. You have to know about the, the uh, background common law that might be brought to bear. In essence, they're saying to the court that's reviewing, you have a big job to get up to speed on the full context of what happened before you're in a position to say that that decision maker acted unreasonably. So we'll, we'll unpack that further, the, the contextual um, factors that are brought to bear in assessing whether something is reasonable. That's a hundred percent right. That is said perfectly, and I wish I had said it just like that. <laughs> that's that's exactly it. Probably crossed out your last five minutes of notes and just like that. But I get paid by the word. <laughs> so it's important to be totally clear that in this new um, sort of reasons first approach that considers the not just the substantive outcome but the reasoning process you know, notwithstanding respectful attention, this is something that departs from quite recent Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence. We're going to get back into that when we talk about the dissent, which takes strong issue with this departure from recent jurisprudence. But you probably would be remiss if I didn't mention um, sort of the two leading cases on that high water of deference where the court, in essence, seemed to say, it's not only what reasoning process was offered, but also what reasoning process could have been offered in support of this outcome, because the, the focus really was on outcome. And that was uh, two cases with both of a similar name, in a sense, with a province and a profession. You have Alberta teachers and Newfoundland nurses are the two cases that are really that high water deference um, focus on the outcome, not just the reasoning process. 
So where I think you're getting the real valuable part of Babylog and where I think you need to um, expect you're going to spend the most time while practicing applying Babylog is, again, in these paragraphs where they talk about how to apply their reasonableness standard. And what the court talks about is you want to bear in mind what it calls the hallmarks of reasonableness. Justification, transparency, and intelligibility. Justification, transparency, and intelligibility, the hallmarks of reasonableness. And so, you know, if I'm defending a decision, I might have at the top of my page justifiable, transparent, and intelligible. And those might be my touchstones for my submission. No matter what the court says, I might say, that may be a concern you have with this decision, and there, there may even be a, uh, a, something that's overlooked or a flaw there. But fundamentally, these reasons are justifiable, transparent, and intelligible, and the reasoning process as a whole you know, can, can bear this scrutiny. And that is because, again, or maybe not again, I, for the first time, what matters is the reasoning process as a whole. And the court has this line that I love, that I always say, you know, any decision, any time I'm trying to defend a decision, you say, judicial review is not a line-by-line -line treasure hunt for error. And I, I love that image of sort of the, the judge going through the decision line by line, aha, you know, they forgot the word not there. Um, but that is almost the level of scrutiny a judge who is disinclined towards the outcome may bring to bear. They may say, well, how can we defend this decision when there's an obvious logical flaw on page six? But then if you are defending, you say, well, obvious logical flaw is the fourth different reason that this decision maker offered for upholding or for, you know, this result. The other three reasons still stand to bear, and the overall outcome falls well within the scope of their, you know, what was before them, and they haven't exceeded their jurisdiction. So you want to think this, it is not a line-by-line -line treasure hunt. We're not looking for any individual little error and using that as a as a hook to overturn the decision, but rather we have to concern ourselves with the reasoning process and the decision as a whole and judging against those hallmarks of justifiability, transparency, and intelligibility. And the court further sort of unpacks the analysis and says there are really two broad categories of concerns that you want to turn your mind to when you review in courts. And you want to turn your mind to whether there is internally coherent reasoning and whether the decision is justifiable in light of the legal and factual constraints. So I'll go through both of those in, in some detail. Internally coherent reasoning is 
probably the easier one to, to teach, although no less difficult to apply in practice. And what the court stresses is what matters is that the reviewing court be able to trace the decision maker's reasoning without encountering a fatal flaw in the overarching logic. So again, it's not a little flaw, a little logical, you don't have a, you know, that, that doesn't really follow from your, your precedence, that conclusion doesn't really follow. It's not a little flaw, but rather it's the overarching logical reasoning process of the decision as a whole needs to be traceable by the decision maker, by the reviewing court, without there being any overarching laws encountered. The court sort of gets a bit colloquial when they say fundamentally the reasons have to add up. You have to be able to say, okay, I understand. If those are the facts that, you, that you've accepted and you have interpreted the law in this way, you know, you put that together and you get this outcome and the logic of it all adds up. You know, you can't have clear logical fallacies, false dilemmas, unfounded generalizations, absurd premises. And the court says, look, I don't need you to break this down. I don't know if you're taking formal logic and then you're undergrad. You don't need to take a, log a logician's eye to this. But we need to be sure that there aren't just fundamental logical fallacies, which if they exist and they go to the overarching logic of the decision, we just can't let it stand, regardless of whether the substantive outcome seems to be one that might fall within the range of possible outcomes in this case. In essence, we can't leave a litigant with the result of saying, well, you're right. Logically, that made no sense, but you're going to still have it applied to you anyways. Uh, and that was the potential outcome of a uh, high level of deference. If you were concerning yourself not with what was offered, but with what could have been offered, you were in a sense saying to the litigant, well, I get it. I read the reasons and they do not make sense. But had they said this, this, and this, it would have made sense and you still would have lost. So, you know, away you go. Wasn't that satisfying? And the courts have said, we can't abide by that anymore. We're leaving that aside. If there is a fundamental flaw with the overarching logic, we are going to say that's an unreasonable decision and we're going to set it aside. So this is a move towards a bit less deference. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, what you said about not letting decisions stand Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I see what you mean. So, like, if you're formulating your conception as substantive, it's really just concerned with the outcome and whether that outcome falls within the scope of the jurisdiction, then doesn't it seem like attacking the reasoning process is really more getting at, well, it's unfair for me to be stuck with this outcome on this basis. That's a really excellent question. And I... I think that it gets to just a different 
um, formulation of what substantive entails in that entails both the outcome and the process. And if you get to the dissent, we'll see that that is framed as a pretty radical development. And the, and the dissent seems to tie that into their broader critique that you've really rearranged the um, sort of the philosophy underpinning judicial review, and you've done so in a way that's going to lead to less deference. And so I, I think that's a really astute question that um, just underscores the degree to which what is substantive is rethought in Babelov and rethought in this key way of encompassing both process, the reasoning process and outcome. And even the fact that I have to say processed and correct reasoning process, I think underscores your concern that doesn't this feel a bit more like process? But so reasoning process has fallen under the rubric of substantive concerns within the Babelov framework and the rubric of substantive concerns gets this reasonableness analysis. That was a great question. All right, so I said there's really these two um, sort of types of, uh, of potential flaws the court will turn its mind to. The, is there internally coherent reasoning? And is the decision justifiable in light of the legal and factual constraints? I'll turn to that second one now. So the court sets out a bit of a laundry list of things that the court, that the reviewing courts need to consider when determining if a decision is justifiable in light of the applicable legal and factual constraints. Specifically, I'll give the, the list and then I'll unpack the different components of the list. They have the governing statutory scheme, other relevant statutory or common law, the principles of statutory interpretation, the evidence before the decision maker, and the facts of which the decision-maker may take notice, the submissions of the parties, and the past practices and decisions of the administrative body. Sorry. And, <laughs> another and, the potential impact of the decision on the individual to whom it applies. So let's go through these. Uh, they merit greater or less detail in consideration. Uh, so this governing statutory scheme comes first on the list and you know should again be first in our hearts. Uh, if I can impress really one thing on you in this class, it's the important of the importance of the legislative scheme to understanding the whole process of judicial review. And if you are going to assess whether the decision is reasonable, the court had better really understand the statutory scheme at issue. They better understand not just the one provision, but they better understand the entirety of the thing. And so you want to have respect without offering your own interpretation and, and your own view of how the statutory scheme should work together. You need to review the whole thing to at least understand the framework. 
Um, a decision needs to comply with the rationale and purview, the court says, of the statutory scheme. You need to think not just about the one particular provision, but you want to think broadly. But what is this statute trying to accomplish? And the court ties that into also the notion that if you're going to analyze discretion, discretionary component of a decision, you know, what did we learn? Discretion must be exercised in accordance with. You know, it's the purpose for which it was given. And hopefully you have a case in mind that pops up when you think about discretion being exercised in accordance with its purpose. And you're thinking, oh, that's that LeBron Pirelli case. And indeed, it is cited by the Supreme Court in, in Babylon for that point. That, that case has remarkable legs. It doesn't seem to go away. They say you need to comply with statutory definitions. You, know, you, you need to think, you may be in section 58 sub 6, but a term there may be defined in section 2 of the statute. Or sometimes there is another definition provision, you know, for a different part of the statute. So you need to consider the statutory definitions. And within this broader context, the court also notes, you better make sure there's not a fettering of discretion that's happening. Remember, the concept of fettering discretion is when the tribunal is given some broad discretion, but itself imposes an internal limit, which doesn't allow it to fully exercise that discretion. That scene is outside of what the legislature intended. But fundamentally, when talking about the statutory scheme, the court notes that you know, some decisions do have multiple or some questions or statutory provisions do have multiple potential and reasonable interpretations. And some have just one. We'll see this in a second when we get to the application of Babylon in Babylon. So they, they recognize there's a broad range of potential sorts of statutory contexts. There's a, a range of uh, how how many different possible ways any specific statutory interpretation exercise could go. And they emphasize that when you're going to assess the reasonableness of a decision, you know, the, the starting point is a consideration of the governing statutory scheme. They, they then point out you also have to consider not just this enabling statute, the legal for the law society, it's not just the Legal Professions Act for workers' compensation, it's not just the Workers' Compensation Act, but you also have to consider whether there's other relevant statutory or common law. That's the second factor they can say they set up. Because there may be other statutory or common law rules that limit the scope of discretion that's been lawfully assigned to the decision maker. 
And we will see this a bit in the application of Babylon, that there's two statutes that come together. And we talked about it in other contexts as well, about how there can be more than one statute that, that has something to say about the scope of the administrative decision maker's um, exercise, or the scope of their jurisdiction to exercise. I brought you to maybe one of the most extreme examples. You may remember we went to the um, Canada Energy Regulator website, and we saw the list of statutes that apply to the Canada Energy Regulator. It was about six deep, and they all had regulations associated with them as well. So again, you want to familiarize yourself as the review in court, certainly you as lawyers, not just with the governing statute, the home statute, but with the entire statutory scheme that governs this area. And you also need to consider relevant common law decisions. And what they point out as an example, I think is quite good, is in the immigration context, for example, criminality can come up quite often. You can't let this person in. You can't let this person stay because they are a criminal, committed some criminal offense. And so immigration officers can be judged, not with deciding whether a, a criminal offense is punishable or something like that, but with whether there has been criminal conduct which merits consideration within the immigration framework. And the court says, if you're going to be doing that, you better be aware of the common law around interpreting and applying these criminal ideas. And, you know, we certainly can't have an immigration officer giving a interpretation and application of a criminal law uh, provision that the courts have, you know, conclusively rejected. And, you know, perhaps for charter grounds or perhaps for some other reason. So there may be common law that binds and circumscribes, in essence, the, the, the scope of what would be a reasonable interpretation. But the court notes the degree to which you can import common law rules into the administrative law context um, you know, may, may exist to a greater or lesser degree in different circumstances. There are times where it might be unreasonable to simply bring in and apply a common law rule into the administrative context because you'd be losing sight of the specific nature of that administrative scheme and undermining the underlying purpose. And I think where this may come in most easily uh, as an example is in more procedural matters where especially the rules of evidence are quite often uh, very loose in administrative proceedings and necessarily so in order that the adjudicators can effectively and quickly accomplish their goals. If you were to try to bring in common law rules of evidence, 
you might undermine the overarching statutory provision or purpose. You wouldn't accomplish the purpose of the statute because the adjudicators aren't able to efficiently and quickly administer their scheme. I bring that in as an example to illustrate how common law and administrative law schemes can sometimes not mesh such that the common law can be directly imported. The problem with that example is I'm really talking more about process and substance. So I, I don't want you to go too far on that because I think that we are you know, squarely in substance here and that's more what they're getting at. But I just wanted you to have that in the back of your mind as to like where, where might there be a disconnect between common law rules and the uh, administrative context. And one place you might come to mind is, is the rules of evidence. Um, the court notes international law could have a role to play in, in circumscribing discretion. You know, if you could say, hey, there's a there's a binding principle of international law that's being floated by this decision, you know, that may be something that goes to its unreasonableness. So so far, if we're gonna take a step back, we want to think we have we're, we're talking about these factual and legal constraints. That you're asking whether it's justifiable in light of. We have at first the statutory scheme itself, then we have the broader statutory context, then we have the applicable common law that might circumscribe what's a reasonable uh, range for this decision maker to interpret their, uh, their, their statutory powers. Then we have this potential importation of international law. So it's already getting to be quite a convoluted analysis just on the purely legal side of things. So they have all this in mind, but again, all this in mind with the purpose, not of you doing your own analysis, but having all this in mind in order to be fully appraised to evaluate the reasonableness of the analysis that did occur. So it's a, if Benny was concerned that the complexity was going to get pushed down the line, I, I don't think you can say he was entirely wrong. Let's get, let's get even more complex. They then say you have to have in mind the principles of statutory interpretation. And you all have done statutory interpretation class, right? And so, you know, the modern approach to statutory interpretation, if you're not quite there yet, you probably are very close to being able to recite it by memory. And, you know, you will for sure eventually get there. Grammatical in ordinary sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, the intention of the parliament. Like it's, it's in there. <laughs> it's a pledge of allegiance. So it's, it's in there for me. Um, so you, the court says, look, that is the way to interpret legislation, and that is broadly the approach that administrative decision makers have to take. Um, but what they're looking for is the spirit of that approach, not a formulaic recitation. 
So they don't have to, you know, say the holy incantation that I just muttered on my breath. They have to, though, interpret the law in accordance with the purpose of the statute and ultimately the purpose for which, you know, they are entrusted with this decision. So if you were to see a rigid, hypertextual interpretation that ignored the overarching purpose and got to something that just doesn't jive with the, you know, the clear intention of Parliament, they have failed to apply the proper statutory interpretation framework, and that's something that can take it outside of reasonableness. So broadly, you want to think it's not that you have to go through a detailed statutory interpretation exercise, but if I can show that there is some fundamental disconnect between this interpretation and the object and scheme of the act and the intention of parliament, that's something that does come to bear. Okay, so we've got now the statute, broader statutory context of other statutes, the common law, international law, principles of statutory interpretation, all are in the judge's mind not to do their own analysis, but to review what this administrative decision maker said. Keep on going. What else do you have to consider? Well, it's not just the law, but it's also the factual context. You have to consider the evidence that was before the decision maker and the facts the decision maker may take notice of. And a decision can be vulnerable if a decision maker has just fundamentally misapprehended or ignored the evidence that was before them. Now, the first three or four, you may think, boy, that's a bit of work to get up to speed on. This factor is a ton of work to get up to speed on. Now, if you're a reviewing court and you're considering the approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, if you want to read the evidence that was filed with the National Energy Board, it would fill this room in binders, right? How do you reconcile that? How do you resolve that? Well, whose job is it to actually know the evidence and bring it to the court? the lawyers, right? So they're really saying to the lawyers, you know, you if you want to defend a decision, you need to show how it's defensible in light of the full record that was before the decision maker. I don't think we're going to read the entire thing necessarily, but you know, you kind of better, and you better be able to come to the court with a full appreciation and understanding of that record and an ability to convey to the court, assuage any, assuage any concerns, um, that something may have not been considered, may have been overlooked. You know, it's, it's quite the daunting prospect. And, you know, you may have already had this experience, but if not, you will. When you talk to somebody about what the truly great lawyers do, it, it really often is people say, Boy, they put in the work. They know the record. They read every scrap of paper. 
And I mean, every scrap of paper is probably an exaggeration, but it is amazing when you see your Joe Marge or someone like that argue and the court will, you know, push some questions to him that seems very difficult. They'll say, oh, that's not fully answered in the record. Turn to binder six. You know, there it is. And it, that skill is, you know, is remarkable. Something I aspire to. I certainly don't have. But you need to um, recognize that to assess the reasonableness, they want you to look at the entirety of the record that was before the decision maker. The court can't do that themselves necessarily. They need counsel to guide them through that. And but the court is cautioning uh, reviewing judges. You know, if you don't understand the full factual context, you're really not in a very good position to articulate something as being unreasonable. And, and then the submissions of the parties matters as well. So it's not just the evidence that was before the decision maker, but what they said ought to be done with that evidence. And this is extremely important uh, in part because of a principle that I articulated back again when we were talking about bias. And it's that principle that you're supposed to raise issues with the administrative decision maker. You know, not hold them and then go to court and say, aha, there's a problem here. Remember in bias, we talked about how you're supposed to tell the decision maker, you know, you, you at least look biased to any reasonable person looking at it before you make that argument. Well, the same is true for any other thing. If you want the statutory interpretation to be taken, if you think that there's some evidence that's very dispositive of your case and needs to be considered by this decision maker, you're supposed to say it to them not hold back and raise it for the first time on judicial review. And it may be that if you just look at the evidence of the law, you're like, well, there's evidence right here. It goes to this point, and you just miss this. But then you look at the submissions, and the lawyer or the individual appearing for themselves at the tribunal level may expressly concede that those two things don't go together or may have uh, completely ignored that in their submission and focused on something else entirely. So to assess the reasonableness of the decision, it's, you know, there's a broader point here that we are reviewing the process and the decision that's already happened. We're not saying in a perfect world, how should this have gone? And so if there was an argument that wasn't raised, even if it looks on review like it might have been successful, well, it's almost it's too late, too bad. You should have raised it then. And as a for respectful attention, respectful deference, you know, we can't allow people to be holding back arguments intentionally or not and raising them for the first time on judicial review. This is not an absolutely hard and fast proposition and there, there can be circumstances the court is willing to entertain new arguments, but you're going to be up against it if you're saying that some new argument should carry the day. And, um, you know, certainly that underscores how the submissions are relevant and sometimes quite important factor, which is different from a, uh, an ordinary appeal. Like if you go up to the court of appeal, they really don't care frankly, what the submissions were in the court below very often, unless there was a concession on a point of fact. But at the administrative level, it's a different process and it really does matter. Yeah. I might be wrong, but it was these practices that you were talking about, 
Such a good, such a good point. And I think, frankly, they don't sometimes, especially if I lose. I think uh, you, you made that mistake. Um, but I know, I think you're absolutely right that that is what happens. Um, how you're, in theory, how you're supposed to avoid that is through this reasons first approach that doesn't ask yourself what you would have done but which asks yourself simply, is this defensible in its overarching logic and in light of these contextual factors? Um, so you're asking yourself, you know, the question over and over again of not what would I have done, but is there a fundamental problem with what this person did? And so that's the difference in kind between the two prospects, or the two projects of sort of a correctness and a reasonableness review. But when you are you know, turning your mind to so many factors, um, it's almost natural that you're going to narrow and narrow and narrow what you see as what could be a reasonable decision. And so, um, you know, your your concern there, um, I think, is very astute again, and it underscores some of the um, sort of fundamental level concerns that dissent brings to to bear on this. Um, I'm just going to press through these next two factors before we take our break. Um, so the second to last factor, and this is an important one, is the past practices and decisions of the administrative body. And this is another one that's attracted some strong academic criticism because one of the most frustrating but well-established ideas of administrative law, you know, post-QP, is that there can be more than one reasonable interpretation of the same statutory provision. You know, we go back to the, the striking provision in QP, does it prohibit hiring people to replace striking workers, or does it prohibit using people to fill the jobs of, of striking really not clear in the statute, you can interpret it either way. So what happens if the labor board ping-pongs back and forth between the two interpretations from decision to decision? They say, well, it's, it protects the, uh, not getting, a, uh, you're losing your job on a permanent basis. Okay, next decision. No, it, it prohibits the employer from using management to fill those jobs. Um, the idea was, that's the price you pay for deference. That potential inconsistency in application of the same provision by the same board um, is a price you pay for deference. And the court doesn't do away with that. They, they say, yes, indeed, you are allowed to have um, you know, differing interpretations. You're not bound by your own decisions. And indeed, in light of how much they depart from their own decisions in this case, you know, they almost better. But that uh, they 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 say that we are not overturning that fact that that principle. But what we are going to say 
is that if there has become one of these situations where there is sort of a, a discord in the law, you're having a an inconsistency that's just causing this discordance where litigants just don't know what result they're going to get. They say, in essence, to fail to resolve persistent discord may be a sign of unreasonableness. And I think what they're getting at here is, so I had this case um, I was actually just successful very recently, happy to say, where there was this mobile home park who um, wanted to evict long-term tenants because while they're long-term tenants, the rent can go up whatever percent of the year. You evict somebody, somebody new comes in, you can set the new rent whatever you want, and the, you know, the market rate goes way up. Long-term tenants were paying well under. So, in essence, what the mobile home park was doing was it was evicting people, and when they tried to challenge that eviction, it was saying this mobile home park and this lease does not fall under the jurisdiction of the residential tenancy branch. They were saying this is outside of the scope of RTB's authority can't even consider whether this eviction is reasonable. It's a pure matter of contract. Um, they had an argument. But when people, apart from just trying to evict people, they were also taking away amenities and services. And they were saying, okay, you can no longer use this facility. You no longer have you know, this water hookup. You no longer have this. Just basically you know, trying to make their lives miserable. So they leave. And there, they issued those notices in pursuant to the Residential Tenancy Act, which was a way to give them legal force. And they were saying, if you want to challenge this, you have to go through a whole residential tenancy process. So they were saying, sometimes the Residential Tenancy Act applies here. Sometimes it doesn't. To the same lease on the same land. And they got differing results. They got some cases where the residential tenancy branch said, yes, this is within jurisdiction. We are deciding this case. Sometimes they said it wasn't. And this mobile uh, home park just kept doing this over and over again, trying to get different results. What I take Babylon to mean is, in and of itself, the fact that there's different results is something that we might have to grapple with. However, if you go to the RTV and you say, hey, this mobile home park has argued for and against jurisdiction in the exact same park on the exact same lease, and we have decisions going this way and that, and the residential tenancy branch was just to say, if there is no jurisdiction, thank you, Bob. That would be insufficient. They need to at least try to resolve that. They need to grapple with it and say, I understand there's been this problem, Here's why we're going this way. So it's not the fact of a differing uh, decision. It's not the fact you didn't follow another decision of the same body in and of itself that's a problem. 
But if you've gotten to this level of discordant criticism, or sorry, discordant um, outcomes that, that is causing this discord, and you do nothing to try to resolve it, that might be the problem. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, then the final factor that they point to is the potential impact of the decision on the person. And again, this gets to sort of the idea that there is this huge array of, um, of potential impacts from the life-altering to the very mundane that gets decided by administrative decision-makers. And if you're at that very mundane level, it may be the case that the level of reasoning and justification process that you're going to demand before you're satisfied something is reasonable, you know, just doesn't look the same as the level of, of reasoning that you're going to demand if it's someone's life, you know, in some fundamental way is going to change based on the decision at issue. There may be a heightened duty, the court says, to make clear that they have understood the issues and demonstrate they have considered the consequences of the decision. It's one thing to, to give me a two-line response to why I don't get the fishing permit to go you know, hang out with my friends on the river. It's a quite different thing to get the two-line response to why I you know, have to leave the country. So is Binney's prophecy come to bear that we just moved all the context down into the analysis and we haven't avoided it? But pretty hard to argue with that, that point. Um, but then again, it has to happen somewhere. And is it right and appropriate that it happens here as opposed to at an earlier, more esoteric standard of review phase where we haven't you know, gotten into this respectful attention to the decision maker's reasons? Well, that's a more debatable point, I think. Is it good where it's landed? You know, we can, we can talk about that and disagree or, or agree. So let's um, let's take our break now. I'm going to queue up that uh, presentation at the Supreme Court, and uh, we'll come back. Um, let's try to make it a little bit shorter. So let's try to come back in about six, seven minutes. We're going to now go back to the um, the SCC hearing, and I want to show you a bit of a clip of um, this amicus curiae, uh, the rector of the University of Montreal, speaking about this question of how to apply reasonableness and the problems that arise you know, within that process. Um, he very impressively argues this case bilingually, where he flips back and forth between French and English. So at times you'll see a his mouth moving and hear a female voice, that's the translator. And then when he flips back to English, we'll hear the uh, explore audio. I would say that, first of all, that person is,
he or she would wish to him or herself in a position of sacrifice. I wouldn't say that the family is not a home over our care. I would say that when we're dealing with what is society is attitude and it is such a hierarchy. Black, I believe, justice by men arose for the reason, and quoted Justice Simon said in the appellate court, as he was talking about this. These issues. So, in my opinion, there are four ways of dealing with reasonable mistreatment. Uh, uh, what are the available ways in that context? I would say there are four ways of reasonable mistreatment. One way is to look for badges on reasonableness. And once you get to a reasonableness review, you might want to say, well, make okay, a okay. I think that that's 
What I like about that clip so much is we see the core struggling with the very things I think we were struggling with. Are we just pushing it down the line? Where does it fit within the analysis? How is this really just 
respectful attention as opposed to reviving a sort of range of reasonable outcomes approach or asking the court to decide first sort of what it would determine the um, matter to be and use that to measure it against. And, you know, I think what the amicus uh, does so well there is sort of say, well, what else, what, what are you going to do? What, what, what are your other options? And he, he's, that's the way he's framed his presentation is to say, do you want to just put a bunch of indicia of unreasonableness out there? Is that going to be the, the approach? What, what other options do we have sort of but to evaluate reasonableness within its full context while keeping in mind this kind of respectful attention? And, you know, you see from Justice Brown, a, um, he's not fooled by what's happening. And he's allied to the downsides of what's happening, of what is proposed to happen. But he signs off on that approach. You know, just as we saw uh, Audrey Bachdor uh, sort of convince the court she was right last class, I think we sort of see the exchange here where Justice Brown comes on board with this contextual, reasonable approach uh, that ultimately does win the day. Uh, Justice Kerrigan-San is interestingly the one who said, okay, I, can I just tell you where you put this in the analysis? And he said sort of, yes. She doesn't come strictly on board with this. Uh, she's in the dissent or the concurring reasons of, with Justice Abella, which we'll, we will come back to in a second. Uh, but so I think that's a nice, another example of the, you know, kind of a, key point in the in the hearing in terms of uh, you know, a turning point, as it were, the TSN turning point of the day for Babylon is there. The, um, the next issue that I want to tackle is the question of um, remedy. Or oh, sorry, quickly review the absence of reasons and then remedy. Uh, Briefly before doing that, I do want to also mention, I think you see sort of a, another approach to advocacy that he takes. Um, it's, they look like a professor up there, right? Like, you, you can tell this guy's an academic. And the sort of bemused um, teacher vibe where he's not, you know, he's not yelling at the court. He's not, um, he's, he's not using rhetorical flourishes. He's also not this sort of very um, like measured and very deferential advocate. He's up there sort of talking to his peers, as, as it sounds. Uh, I think that's an excellent place to go with your advocacy, but you got to get there. <laughs> you know, that's that's more of a you know down the line. You got to get a lot of gray hairs before you can probably um, have that approach land. But if you can get there, that's really good. I mean, he's a very effective advocate. Okay, so um, before getting to remedy, there's this sort of big hole in this framework that I think we need to uh, address. And that is, what do you do when there aren't any reasons? And it really is remarkable how central the reasons get in this Babylon framework, considering that at the time of Baker, you know, there was no known common law duty to provide reasons ever for administrative decision makers. 
And by the time of Babylon, we've gone so far as to say not only, you know, will there often be a duty to provide some reasons at least, but those reasons are what's going to guide the court's analysis. And if there's flaws in those reasons, you know, even if we've got a decision that falls within a range of substantive potential outcomes that are reasonable, we are still not going to defer to that. So the strong elevation of reasons raises the question of, well, what if there are no reasons? And the first line of attack that you would take if there were no reasons and you were unhappy with the substantive outcome is the procedural fairness baker argument that you needed reasons, that it was unfair to not give me reasons at all. That's your first line of attack, right? So it's only if the court goes through the baker factors and says, well, you don't have a common law procedural fairness right to reasons in this context, that you get into the potential for substantive review the absence of reasons. So it's going to be those cases that are going to be at the low end of the Baker spectrum that are going to have the potential to raise this issue of substantive review in the absence of reasons. And what the court says is if you're in that low end where you don't have any reasons, there's really two things you need to do. One, you need to bear especially close, respectful attention to the full context to see what extent you can reasonably glean an understanding of what the actual motivation for the decision was. And what case do they point to as an example of your ability to glean an intention even in the absence of reasons? Again, it comes up over and over again. This is the Roncarelli case. You know, there was no reason saying, dear, you know, Mr. Roncarelli, don't get your liquor license because of your activities with Jehovah's Witnesses. But when you were to delve into the evidence, look at that letter, look at the broader context, you understood what was motivating the exercise of discussion, and you didn't need reasons to, to get there. So they say, you may be able to understand the motivations and the reasoning, even in the absence of reasons. If that's not the case, if you can't understand the reasoning process, it's just a pure, here you go, here's your decision, it's a yay or it's a nay, and I'm not going to tell you why, and you don't have a right to get reasons as to, as to why, well then the court says you have to simply confine your analysis to whether the substantive outcome is reasonable in the circumstances. You're not going to have that second hook of arguing that the reasoning process, the why, is problematic. You could only focus on the what. So I think inevitably you're going to see a couple things coming out of Babylon. One is as courts become more accustomed to this primacy of reasons in the analysis, they're going to be more willing to find a requirement to provide reasons. I think you're going to see more and more tribunals be bound to owe a duty of fairness to provide reasons. Uh, I think empiric that's probably going to happen. Um, as a side note, I think empirical study of law 
outcome is excellent. And if any of you want to do something that, uh, you know, get a paper published, a really good way to do that is to do an empirical study where you, you know, make some rubric and try to pull, you know, all the cases applying that uh, in the last two years to try to draw out some trends. Um, and I think, you know, one area to look for would be, um, is there an increase in finding a common law duty to provide reasons? You may not have the data set quite yet to do that, but that's a paper that's going to be written. So that, that's one point coming out of it. Um, a second thing is that you're going to see decision makers knowing that their decisions are being more carefully scrutinized than their reasoning, probably writing lengthier reasons. I just sort of intuitively, uh, if you know someone's going to be checking your work, you work a little harder. Is that a good thing? In any given case, yeah, I think so, right? In any given case, I'd like to have better reasons. I'd like to have the decision maker have to go through the reasoning process more carefully. That might lead to a better decision made, decision made, and it certainly will lead to me understanding that decision in a better way. Is that always a better thing systemically? It puts a bigger burden on decision makers. They're going to take a little longer on every case. That could lead to further backlogs. That could lead to further delays in getting your administrative decision heard and decided. It's that trade-off we've always we talked about throughout. Between the more process, the more fairness you give, you know, the more of a burden you're placing on the decision maker, and ultimately the more resources the system will have to put into that decision-making process to get outcomes in an efficient way. So there's that constant push and pull. There's, there's nothing free in elevating reasons in the way that's, that's happened, but it is what happened. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk next about remedy. Um, I am looking at the time, and it just, I'm sorry, it's, we're going a bit slower than I thought, but this is extremely important. So I doubt we're going to get through this event and NFL today. I'll recalibrate and I think we may spend all our next week on a dialogue and then push our next classes back a bit and we'll probably drop one of the um, admin law and practice classes. But that's um, neither here nor there. Right now, let's just keep talking and I'm not going to speed through this because this, this stuff is so, so important. Um, and I do want to talk a bit about remedy because, you know, I started the course with it because it's what you have to think about when your client comes in first and foremost. What can I get you if we go through a judicial review? And what the court says is that the presumption, the very strong presumption, is that we are going to quash and remit, quash and remit, set aside this decision if it's unreasonable, and send it back to the decision maker to decide again. Um, that's absolutely what you have to tell your client is the most likely outcome in successful judicial review. 
which we say, however, there are circumstances where remitting the matter, sending it back, would stymie timely and effective resolution of the underlying dispute. You, as first affected by this decision, you've just gone to court, you've just shown them there is a fundamental problem with this. The last thing you want to do is go back to that same board that found against you the first time. And, you know, especially so if you're the type of entity that doesn't historically have success before that type of a board. Um, if you're an Aboriginal group and you go before the National Energy Board, and surprise, surprise, the pipeline gets approved again, you would much rather see the court step in and say, you cannot approve that pipeline, than to say, go try again with different reasons. Right? So, you are going to make these arguments almost every time if you're asking for applicants to try to say, don't say that, decide the matter right now. And the court accepts that there are circumstances where the broader project of timely and effective justice is better served by us deciding the case at this time. And they say, this is the case where there is only one possible outcome. Our particular decision is inevitable. We have gone through and looked at your reasoning process. The flaw is fundamental, and the flaw is such that if you don't make this flaw, there is only one possible way this could happen. In that circumstance, not going to send it back, we're going to substitute our decision and make that work. Now, being good admin lawyers, you want to start thinking, okay, wait, I've got my three circles on my board, I've got my executive, my judiciary, my legislature. I understand how the executive got the power to make that order, to make to decide that issue. They were given it by the legislature. I understand where the judiciary gets the power to supervise the executive to make sure it stays within its jurisdiction. But where does the judiciary get the power to step in and decide the issue and make the order on behalf of the administrative tribunal? It's not in the legislation. There's nothing in the legislation saying that the court can step in and decide the issue. In fact, there may be a very strong privative clause that says, hands off, court. Where does that power come from? Thank you. I love it. Section 96. These are inherent jurisdiction courts. The, the, the jurisdiction of these courts is, um, is limitless. Uh, the only limits on the court's jurisdiction are self-imposed, through that concept of justiciability. It's not that I can't, because my jurisdiction is plenary, is everything. It's that I shouldn't. So what the courts, in essence, are saying is, look, you shouldn't step in and decide this on behalf of the tribunal, because the legislature doesn't want you to. 
You shouldn't do that as a general rule. However, if it would serve no useful purpose to send it back, and indeed might prejudice the parties and undermine the broader project of justice, well, then you should. Okay? So, a few takeaways on remedy. You want to think the strong default is you're going to get quash and remit, quash and remit. But there are potential situations where what you're going to get is, hey, there's only one way this can go. This has been dragging on too long. There is no useful purpose in you sending it back for the inevitable to occur. Litigant, get your remedy right now. Why? Because I'm the court and I'm the man. So I want to show, because you know what, being as we're not finishing anyways today, I'm not going to rush. And I'll show you kind of a fun exchange, um, which I think underscores um, the way these remedy issues were front and center in the court's mind. It's also fun because you get to see um, the author of the chapter that we read on Friday arguing in the Supreme Court of Canada and Audrey Macklin and actually running into problems, I think, around what I had a problem with your chapter on, which is the um, place of jurisdiction, not in the choosing of standard of review, but in the sort of overarching project of what the court is doing. And to set it up, um, you know, I mentioned you had the sort of cavalcade of interveners at the Supreme Court of Canada level. And they offer different um, approaches. Some say, hey, you know, no deference on anything. Rule of law means we are going to just defer never again. You know, some are saying, in essence, let's just stop just reviewing the law. And gonna, we're just going to, this whole protest is done. Let's just let the tribunals do what they want to do. Basically, everything in between needs to go forward. Uh, Professor Macklin offers an approach that says, Focus on the reasons. Okay, she's actually on, you know, she's on, on the same page as the court. And she says, but the quality of the reasons is the basis for deference. So focus on the reasons. If the reasons are of a certain quality, defer to them. If they are not, do not defer to them, but instead take the matter up yourselves. And decide the matter yourselves. Now, I think you may be able to see the intuitive appeal to that um, in the sense that if a decision maker is giving you really horrible reasons, do you really want to defer to that? Isn't, as she will say in a second, deference earned? But I think you may also see the potential problem with that on the second half of saying, take it up yourselves. So let's, let's watch your presentation. But what's especially interesting, I think, is the court's response, and that response in light of the, um, the potential remedies that are available. She gets a pretty fiery reception from some of these judges. Sorry, I should have had this queued up.
this fella. Thank you. 
goes on like that for a little while. Uh, you get the point, though, that the court has this concern around, wait, we are still in the process of reviewing, not deciding, not substituting in the first place. Um, and you heard, there's all this little comment in the background where they're like, you know, it's not our job to uh, say how it needs to go. And you're like, I'm not saying what it is. Like, someone says it in the background there. 
And, <laughs> but it is very important because that is the exception. Um, but you see, if you want to argue there's a framework that's going to give it over the course of general rule, you're going to get that sort of a response. However, in this very case, they are going to go ahead and say there's only one possible answer here, and we're going to substitute our decision. So, you know, poor Professor Malcolm gets this rough response from the court by for suggesting that, you know, they do something they're going to eventually do. But her framework, I think, does have some problems that the court well articulated. Uh, so we didn't get through, frankly, half of what I thought we were going through today. That's my fault, but also I'm glad that we are going to you know, take our time through the standard review stuff. It is very important. I will recalibrate next week over the weekend, send you an email. Um, you probably will have very little additional review for Wednesday, if any, uh, which may be nice. Uh, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you Wednesday. Good question, and we will come back to that, actually. Yeah.